Welcome this morning again. I'll say that again as Neil did. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited y'all are here. Um, whether you're here online, in person, or online, um, we are so glad to be able to come together through individual like this and through media to be able to worship God. We're going to begin this morning with prayer, and we're going to be praying for Ben and Christy McGraw. Right now they're in Louisiana helping Ben's parents get settled, his dad coming home from rehab. Um, so be praying for them. Ben is still recovering uh, from his... Um, Got to get my hearing aid straightened out after I took my mask off, sorry. Um, uh, get, getting him settled at home after he's been in rehab. Ben's getting better. Um, he told me on... He told me yesterday... He's walking every day and doing some push-ups, trying to, trying to build some strength. And if you know anything about Ben, and, I mean, he's on his bicycle, you know, sometimes several hundred miles a week, and he said he knows that that's just going to come back very, very gradually. So let's continue to pray for him. We're also going to be praying for another church. Just directly across the street is Pecan Grove Church of Christ. We're going to be praying for one of the elders, John Bannister. Um, we're going to be praying for another unreached people group. This unreached people group we're going, to, we're going to pray for this morning. According to the Joshua Project in India, there are 2,717 people groups, and of that number, 2,445 people groups are unreached. When I read that yesterday, it just kind of shook me. I thought, wow, I had no idea. The total number of people in India right now is 1,313,878, or 313,878,000 approximately. Okay, a lot of folks. So this morning we're going to be praying for the Abdul people. It's a people group of about 35,000 zero believers in that 35,000. So we're going to be praying for them. Then we'll be praying for our time together. So join me this morning in prayer. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for your presence here. And Father, you are here not because of who we are, but because of your love for us. Father, I pray that you will demonstrate your love for us as the Holy Spirit leads us into the truth of your word. Father, I pray this morning for Ben and Christy, Father in Louisiana. Father, I pray that you sustain them and strengthen them father i pray that you continue to provide the healing that ben needs father i pray for wisdom as they make decisions for ben's parents father this is a hard season of life to be in and it's escalated by this virus and by the quarantine and by the the fear that people are living under but father i pray for ben's dad that as he is, as he's received some physical therapy, that he will gain some strength. But Father, more than that, I pray that you would comfort him. According to Ben's testimony, his dad has been a strong follower of Jesus all his life. Been a deacon, been a, just an impact in the community. And Father, I pray that you would be merciful to him in this time. Pray for Ben's mom also that you would help her have the strength to be able to help her 
her lifelong partner. Father, I pray for Ben and for his brothers as they see their parents aging. It's a hard process. But Father, for believers, it is a, it's a change of address from here to heaven. So Father, I pray that that would be a merciful movement. Father, I also pray for uh, another church fellowship here in town, Pecan Grove Church of Christ, just our across-the-street neighbor. Father, I pray this morning for one of the elders, John Bannister, and his wife, Sharon. Father, I pray, first of all, that their marriage would be sweet and it would continue to grow in love for you and love for one another. And Father, I pray for John's study that it would have been already this week rich. And I pray for that people group this morning as they are gathering to worship. May they worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray for this unreached people group, the Abdul people in India. It's 35,000 people, none of whom are believers. The religion is Islam. Father, I pray for someone to be able to speak into the life of at least one of the Abdul people, that the Holy Spirit would be at work to soften that individual's life so that they could hear the truth of the word and that seed would take root and grow and multiply so that the Abdul people will hear the gospel and make eternal changes in their life. Father, again, I pray for our time this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into the truth of the Word of God. Help us understand and help us apply it to our lives. Thank you for loving us, and it's in Jesus' name I pray this, these things. Amen. All right, now our focal passage this morning will be in James 2, verses 1 through 13. So I invite you to go ahead and turn to that passage. But I also want to add a little note as you're turning there. Whenever you look in the Bible and you find chapter 2 of James and you find verse 1, if, if we're not careful, we'll think, oh, this is a new thought, or this is a new passage, or this is a new idea. That's not always the case. <laughs> you see, this was a letter written by James. James did not write it in books, or he, or he didn't write it in chapters and verses. Okay, those divisions came much later. In fact, in the years 1207 to 1228, Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, broke the books into chapter sections. That's where that came from. And it wasn't until the mid-16th century that Robert Stephanus created a verse numbering system and broke up the sentences and sometimes the middle of the sentences. And you know, so that, that's how we got the chapters and verses. Now, while the chapters and verses are very, very functional in helping us find a passage in Scripture. You know, just like now, I said, turn to James 2, verse 1. Uh, you may have had to look in the index, that's always okay. But you find James, you go to the second chapter, and verse 1, okay, that's where we're going to start. But having that chapter and verse system can interfere with our understanding of Scripture if we're not careful. That's why the context of the book and what's being said is very, very important. 
For example, last week we looked in James 1, 26 and 27, where we, were, where we were commanded by God to have a pure and undefiled religion. James now continues the instructions of the how we maintain a pure and undefiled religion. So it's not just the next chapter, it's just the next thought. Okay? So we're going to be looking, and I'm actually going to back up one verse to James 1.27. That's just right before 2.1, so that's easy. So I would invite you now to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Beginning in James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in your Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, here, you sit in the good place. While you say to the poor man, well, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable or guilty for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for the understanding that comes through the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Please be seated. Now, we're reminded through James 1.21 last week that it is absolutely possible to practice a pure and undefiled religion. And it is absolutely possible to remain unstained by the world. In terms of how we respond to people around us is what James is going to show us today is one of the ways, it's one of the how-tos, it's one of the admonitions that he gives us in maintaining that pure and undefiled religion and remaining unstained by the world. He does so First of all, by telling us how we should respond to people that come into our presence or into our assembly. So let's dig in. Again, in James 2.1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
Now, the beginning of this verse, again, points to the recipients of this letter. It's to believers. It's to the believers of the first century church and all believers since then, including us here today. See, this isn't just a story of something old. This is a story very precious, and this is something that God continues to lead us in. He instructs us that we are to show no partiality as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, partiality can be one of those church words that we just kind of throw around and we don't think about. Most of us can even spell it. But you say, what does partiality mean? And sometimes we kind of stumble. Well, I'm going to give you a definition of partiality. Partiality partiality is defined as having an unfair bias in favor of one person or one thing over someone else or something else. It's It's also defined simply as favoritism. So on the heels of James 1.27, this first verse of chapter 2 gives us the commandment how we are to practice a pure and undefiled religion. And he gives us some very direct pointers of how we should not show partiality. Am I loud? Okay, it just sounds loud to me. Okay, if if y'all are fine, I'm fine. First of all, James tells us in verses 2 through 5 of a situation where the status of a person can create partiality. Let's look in verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, you have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, people can put on all kinds of outward trappings that tend to show wealth. They can put on outside trappings to show importance. And if that's what we look at, we we can be trapped. If we're guilty of showing partiality towards someone who appears to have more to give or more to offer, than another poorer man giving the rich man or woman a place of honor versus the man in tattered clothing, then scripture says we've committed the sin of partiality. We are making distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. In a world, in a word, the religion has become worthless. Another example is Jesus himself telling a story very similar. In Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. 
but he beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, in the time of Jesus, the Pharisee was a very religious man. He knew the law well. And he practiced it as well as he could. However, his attitude in this passage shows clearly that he was all about exalting himself. See, he made a, he made a checklist before God. I do this, I do this, I've done this, I do this. He, boy, he was setting himself up. He thought he had earned a place with God by the things that he did, the things that he had. In fact, in the synagogue, now that, that doesn't hold true today for those of you, who, but in the synagogue, the first row was reserved for the wealthiest and wisest. And the Pharisees would struggle to get to the front seat so that everybody could see who was up front. Now again, that doesn't apply here, so y'all are good. Okay, I'm not saying anything here. Okay, y'all are fine. On the other hand, the tax collector, standing, standing off. The tax collector was known to be the lowest person in the Jewish community. They were absolutely hated. He kept his eyes turned down. He cried out for God to be merciful to him. He had absolutely nothing to give. He could not buy anything from God he couldn't earn anything he simply cried out for God to be merciful to him a sinner and he received his reward also he went away justified the Pharisee earned a place but it was a place of worthless religion Jesus clearly points out here that partiality, comparing and counting oneself better as someone else, and or even bragging about it, will not be tolerated by God. He doesn't put up with it. He doesn't. Jesus states that the proud man will be humbled, and the humble man will be exalted. In our world, there are many examples of one people group looking down on another people group. It happens all the time. You don't have to look very far. There are people groups who not only look down on other people groups, they refer to them as unclean. They're the untouchables. They're the ones that we don't want to come in the door. Scripture also points out someone of the unclean or unworthy class being ministered to by Jesus. We're talking about the Samaritan woman at the well. In John chapter 4, turn with me there. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, 
He left Judea and departing again for Galilee, and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, this story shows just the opposite of partiality by our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he was walking from Judea to Galilee. In verse 4, it says clearly that Jesus had to go through Samaria. All right, so we've got this little map, and I've got a laser pointer from Ben, so I'm set. All right, you see Jerusalem right here. And now, Ben's younger man, he's got a steady hand. My hand is shaky, so if... If the red light starts bothering you, bouncing around, just know that's what's going on. I'm not messing with you, I promise. All right, so right here in Jerusalem, and Jesus was going up here to Galilee, and right in between, right here, is Samaria. So the most direct route from Jerusalem to Galilee is straight up this road to Galilee. Now, this road was about 70 miles long, and walking three miles an hour, or if they were riding an animal, it was also about three miles an hour. But because of the desert and arid region, it would take them anywhere from four to six days to make that journey. Now, good, quote-unquote, you know the quote, quote-unquote, good Jews didn't go through Samaria. No, they did this. They, found, they followed this road over to the Jordan River, and they went up around Samaria then into Galilee. That pathway took them typically an, an, an additional week to make that journey. But they would make that journey to keep from going through Samaria because they felt like not only were the people of Samaria unclean, the dirt that they walked on was unclean. So they would go around. But here in, in, in chapter 4 of John, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, there are some people who would say, well, that makes geographical sense because it's just a straight line from here up. So he had to go that way. He didn't have to go that way for that reason. I fully believe that the reason Jesus had to go through Samaria was because that he had a divine appointment at the well of Jacob in Sychar to meet with an unclean woman. Someone that needed his healing touch. Someone that needed what Jesus had to give. Living water that would never change. Now, Think about this, the Samaritan woman, it says that Jesus was at the well in the sixth hour. That's about noon. Okay, so this Samaritan woman comes out at noon to get water. That tells us something else about her. She was even unclean in the Samaritan people because all the other women would come early in the morning while it was still cool to draw water. She didn't come until noon. Nobody else associated with her. 
So she was the unclean of the unclean. And yet Jesus met her where she was. And after that conversation with Jesus, we see the result of that encounter according to John 4, 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, that is Jesus, because of the woman's testimony, saying, he told me all that I ever did. So Jesus had to go through Samaria to reach the unclean of the unclean. Jesus showed no partiality. Another example we find is in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Mark 2, verses 13. He, that is Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed Jesus. And as he reclined at the table of his house, as Jesus reclined at the table of his house, of Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus went and ate with tax collectors and other sinners. While he did not approve of their lifestyle or their actions, neither did he condemn them, but showed them genuine love. Love for those whose society was, would count as unclean or unworthy. Jesus showed no partiality. The final example of partiality we find in Matthew, that we find in Matthew 20, the final one I'm going to talk about, there's a bunch of others, but in Matthew 20, the mother of James and John asked Jesus to decree that James and John would sit on the left and the right side of Jesus in his kingdom. His reply is found in Matthew 20, verse 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom. For many. Jesus does something absolutely unheard of in this, in his life and in this passage. Rather than striving to be first in line, rather than striving to be the first one through an intersection, <laughs> or better, or rather than driving fast so you can beat everybody else to wherever you're going. Jesus said, we are to look to the needs of others in all things. We're to serve others, not try to be first. 
Here Jesus says that the greatest would be last, would be least. Whoever would be first must be the slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus tells us to strive to serve other people. Scripture points out that the people of that day were not supposed to be partial to someone with apparent wealth or maybe even very real known wealth. Maybe this person not only had the trappings of a wealthy person, but they had the reputation of being a wealthy person. Nevertheless, we are to show no partiality. Now the question begs to be asked here, are we guilty of this partiality? Are we guilty of this partiality? We can be if we're not careful. See, again, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome that. We cannot do that. And James tells us what we're to do. Let's imagine for a moment, if you will, that we hear of someone in the community who has maybe inherited a large amount of money, and they're very vocal about, we want to help the local church. And that person walks in the door one Sunday morning. Never been here before, but we kind of know who it is. What's our response to that individual? Then on that same morning, one of our local street people that we see, it's cold and rainy, kind of like it is outside, but even more so. That person comes in looking for a place to get out of the cold and out of the rain. He has nothing to give. He has nothing to offer. He's simply looking for some shelter. How do we respond to that poor man versus the wealthy man? If there's any difference in our response, dear people of Cross Point, we're guilty of partiality. We can't do that. God calls us to not do that. Okay, deep breath. We've seen what partiality looks like. We've seen it at its worst in Scripture. God tells us to not show partiality, so what are we supposed to do instead of showing that partiality? According to verse 8 of chapter 2 of James, it says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Believers of that day obviously knew what the royal law was and referred to by James. We see this morning, we can look in Scripture this morning, Jesus was quoting from Matthew 22, or quoting Jesus from Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. One Pharisee came to Jesus and tried to test him. In verse 36, he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Loving one another is the second great commandment. Now, there are some who would say, 
and they try to sandwich something between the first and second. And there are people who would say, well, you know, I can't really love somebody else unless I love myself. You may have heard that. I have. It's a pretty common statement in our society, in our world. In saying that, we are literally trying to introduce a third commandment there. God says we're to love God, we're to love our neighbors. But then we say, oh yeah, but I've got to love myself first. So guess what? The second commandment gets bumped to the third place, if that were the case, but it's not. See, we can't introduce a third commandment here. Jesus said there were two. Jesus was a perfect orator. He said exactly what he meant. He's also God, so he wasn't going to make a mistake. But in his human form, he was a perfect orator. And he said exactly what he meant. He didn't skip something. He said there's two commandments. Love God, love your neighbors. Jesus knew that in our humanity, we tend to love ourselves too much. You know, God has always put his commandments in place to help us in our weakness. Uh, he doesn't tell us to love ourselves because that's usually too much of a problem anyway, to be quite honest. If we say that we must love ourselves before we love our neighbor, we're setting a precondition for that second commandment. Remember, there's two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible is rich in verses where we're commanded to love others over ourselves. Now, I'm not going to get you to turn to these, but I'm going to read some of these verses just in rapid fire, just so you get the idea. If you want these references, I'll give them to you later. John 13, 34. Jesus himself said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let all that you do be done in love. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 John 3.11 For this is the message that you, have, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 3.18 Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You starting to get the point? <laughs> We're to love others. We are to love others. If we love others, we are not showing partiality. We're showing them the love of God. The lesson that we glean from James 2, 1 through 13, can be encapsulated in two verses. And in them we have one of the all-important how-tos of practicing a pure and undefiled religion and keeping ourselves unstained from the world. 
The first is James 2.1. My brothers, show no partiality. As you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, we're to show no partiality. The second verse, in verse 8 of James 2, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. People of Cross Point. In order for us to practice a pure and undefiled religion and to remain unstained by the world, we are called to practice no partiality. But we are to show the flip side of that, of what we are to do, we are to show the love of Jesus to our neighbors. And our neighbors involves anybody that we come in contact with. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Pray with me. Fathers, we come before you this morning. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being a God who cares enough about us to tell us what we are not to do. And then following, just following that, you tell us what we are to do. Father, help us strive to be a people who do not show partiality. Help us strive to be a people who show love to our neighbors. To show love to one another. In doing this, Father, we are practicing a pure and undefiled religion. Father, I thank you for those who are here this morning. I thank you for this time. I thank you for the truth of your word, Father. Help us apply it to our lives in a very real and meaningful way. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.